Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. Hope it's going great with everybody else as well. This is the first time you are tuning in with us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out on the internet. Uh, best way to do that is to follow our Twitter at, at Focused Compound. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you could go to focuscompound.com and click that Invest With Us tab. And if you would like to be on our mailing list for our Focus Compounding Friday edition, where we send out um, a blog post from Jeff on an investing topic directly to your email, uh, go to focuscompound.com and click Friday edition on the header and enter in your email. Um, we are trying to build that email list and you definitely want to have a uh, blog post as well as some other stuff from me in your email every single Friday. So go to focuscompound.com. It's for free and you definitely won't regret it. So in today's podcast, Chef, we are going to talk about uh, a recent podcast that Todd Combs did on the art of investing. This is a podcast about a podcast. And Todd mm -hmm. Combs, this is the second podcast that he's done recently. Another one that he did was on the Nebraska Furniture Mart podcast, where they actually talked about investing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's on this one, which uh, this podcast is is uh, under the Colossus shingle. Uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy invests like the best. It's a very well-produced podcast. And uh, this is one of the better podcasts that I've listened to in, in some time. And of course, it's... Uh, great because we get to hear Todd Combs, you know, talk about things. And honestly, he has sort of shied away from media uh, throughout his career. And we learn about that, that that was an active decision that him and his wife made uh, on that Nebraska Furniture Mart podcast because they had young children. And perhaps maybe his children are now adults and he's willing to go and talk about things more publicly. Um, but yeah, I had sent this to you. I had tweeted this out and uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on it and we could talk a little bit about it. I mean, my okay. I think my takeaway on the last podcast that he did was that he is just a compounding machine, both as it relates to investing, but more so just as like this idea of uh, deliberate practice, continuing to just work on something every single day, right? He referenced Munger's, you know, if, if someone could just go to bed a little bit wiser, Every single day that when they woke up, you know, over a lifetime, you can accomplish basically, you know, all your dreams. And, uh, you know, I think he sort of embodies that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it and we can talk about Todd, talk about Todd Combs. So what were your thoughts on the podcast? Well, the podcast has a lot about his time before Berkshire and how he got started really from college to working for a regulator and, and working as a regulator. And, um, you know, just sort of how he learned the things that he did. Um, it does have other information that I don't know if we know, uh, knew as much stuff about, like he gets into shorting and kind of how he did the things that he did. We, we know that he did long short stuff before and with a focus on financial services things. So that's not news, but some of the things that he says about that are different. Um, and he says a few things about, you know, talking to Buffett and stuff. And I think we get a better feel for his personality 
um, and for his thinking like as an investor and uh, how he forms the opinions that he does and how strongly he feels them and and that sort of thing. Certainly you get more of his attitude in this one than you do in some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he had talked about how one of the things said Buffett and him agree on, I think he said 99.2 or 99.8% of everything. Uh, but one of the things that he they disagree on is shorting, right? And mm-hmm. how he had said he doesn't actively short, but he does think it's a, um, you know, just a very crucial process. Uh, or crucial thing to his investing process. And he had said, look, I mean, we effectively, we don't put on a short and make money, but I look at 200 uh, M&A deals per year. And there are a lot of things that we say, no, like this is overpriced or this is would be a good short or whatever. And uh, whereas Buffett, for example, he's like, Buffett just doesn't even think about it. He had said that he shorted or in his in his office, he had a, a Western Union certificate yep. on the wall next to his Dale Carnegie thing. And Todd asked him, like, what's that? And I think it was Buffett's way of reminding himself, hey, you know, do not short anymore. Because Buffett used to short a lot. Him and Munger shorted Western Union and the stock mm-hmm. went up. And I guess then they wrote or they uh, talked to their friends about it to bring the short to light and it continued to go up. And then they wrote a report about it and put it out to the investing public. And then it went up some more. And now since then it's up some, you know, thousand whatever X since then. So I think that's Buffett's way of reminding him uh, himself that, you know, he doesn't like to short, do not short, just don't do it. Yeah. And I think what they're talking about is a company that was um, of what Western Union when it was a very different company than it is now. It's gone through several different phases. That might've been the fifties or something that Buffett had that. I don't know if he said exactly when it was from or if he knows um, Combs. But it, you know, so it, it was in bad financial shape. I think he said that, you know, that it wasn't worth as much as their pension liabilities and stuff. But other things happened over time, and the company became valuable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what were your thoughts about his personality? My interpretation was he talks a lot about grit. He talks a lot about. I mean, I think the best quote during this entire podcast was that people usually rise to their level of complacency. So I mm-hmm. get the impression that he's just a very intense, dedicated guy in in all these aspects of his life, especially professionally. Um, so what were your takeaways from like his personality and just who he is, at least what you can uh, grab from the podcast? Yeah, I mean, he did say that he agrees with Buffett on almost everything, you know, uh, as like a thing that he said. But he did say that he shorted and likes to think about shorting and stuff, even though he doesn't short inside Berkshire. And Buffett doesn't do that. He said that Buffett asked him if Geico or Progressive, you know, what was a better company. And, and he said Progressive. Yeah. And um, he asked him about, um, was it MasterCard versus yep. mm-hmm. uh, American Express? Yeah. And he obviously thinks MasterCard's better than American Express. American Express is one of Buffett's favorite positions. Geico is one of his favorite things forever. And not shorting is a big thing of Buffett's. And he, you know, doesn't have any problem right away telling him that he disagrees with him on all of those points. Mm-hmm. He said he thinks Buffett probably appreciated it because as you're Warren Buffett or a top CEO or whatever, people kiss your ass a lot, I think was the actual uh, term he used. And it said, look, like, this is my opinion. Take it or leave it. You don't have to agree with me. Um, it is funny that he talked about progressive because he liked the data that they had and the way that they use their data. And, you know, ultimately now he's the CEO of Geico. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. funny. My favorite part about this podcast was he was talking with uh, Friedman was his last name. Was it Steven? Yeah, Friedman? the independent chairman of, uh, was it Freddie? What was it? 
Fannie Mae, right? Fannie Mae, yeah. Yeah, okay. Fannie, Fannie Mae. Yeah. So they basically, I forget what the original company was that they were meeting on, but he was just taking them through why this one company was a short. And then at the end of this breakfast, Freeman was like, are there any companies that you think are great shorts? And then Todd just basically goes on saying, Fannie Mae is a complete accounting fraud. There's going to be people who go to jail over this. And this Friedman guy was like taken back by it. And he's like, you know, I'm I'm on the board, right? Wasn't he the chairman of the board? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he was the chairman I, of I, the I board. I don't know if he's the lead independent director, the chairman or whatever. But yeah, he was the top inside, top outside person. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And Todd just sort of like his knee-jerk reaction was, no, I didn't know that, but I would get the hell off that board like tomorrow. And then mm -hmm. this Friedman guy was like, can you meet again for breakfast tomorrow? And they met again and they spent like four or five hours just going through like, I guess, bond accounting math and all these different things on why he thought it was a short and all these problems and whatever. And that Friedman guy, he left the board that night and uh, basically said, look, we've been looking for somebody to stake, um, you know, for seven years or eight years, and we want to stake you with a hedge fund. And I think he said that's sort of what uh, launched his firm, uh, or at least in a big way. I think they like staked them of like $60 million or something like that. Yeah. So that's similar to the Buffett thing that we were just talking about in that had he known that he was on the board because um, he knew a lot about the company, but he didn't remember who was on the board. Uh, then that would be maybe not as honest with him. Well, one, he might not have taken the meeting, but two, if he did, he probably wouldn't have told him that. And so by not knowing that you get things told to you that you wouldn't otherwise. So you either need people who are, you know, the Todd Combs or Charlie Munger personality or whatever, you know, you need some pretty extreme personalities or people who don't know those things to tell you the truth about it once you're in that kind of cocoon because people won't come up to you and tell you that normally. Um, sometimes they do. I mean, Buffett told Geico when they were in trouble in the 70s. He just like, you know, he didn't own the stock and stuff, but he said, look, you're in huge trouble. You got to do something. And they just blew him off, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with Todd's uh, opinion of shorting? I mean, we don't short, right? But can you understand why he does it and why you think it's, you know, maybe works for him and his personality and his investing acumen. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, it, it, it might, it might be better for us in some ways if uh, we did run a long short thing instead of doing what we do. Um, it's not what I've done in the past, but I could definitely see the possibilities from doing it as a hedge fund, you do have this problem. Graham had this problem. Um, so do you, what do you do? Do you invest in arbitrage things? We talked about this before and all of this. Um, you are fairly unprotected from things if you don't have some shorting things in there. Uh, I think more of my problem with the shorting stuff is, um, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'd say I'm skeptical more than, than cynical about some things and that the short, there's a lot of short posts on, the internet. There's a lot of short posts on Value Investors Club and stuff. Um, I don't know how many of them rise to the level of being worth your time and effort for the amount of return that you're going to get in them. But it is true. I mean, you know, we were at a, a meeting, what, three, no, four years ago, about four years ago, a month ago or two months ago. 
um, where you turned to me and said, like, oh, the stock is down 40%. Can you believe the stock's down 40%? And I was like, well, I can't, you know, 40% is a lot for any stock, but if it was going to be a stock, it doesn't surprise me at all that it's that one because I'd looked at the stock and knew about it and stuff, and um, then it was attacked by short sellers, and I eliminated because I was very concerned it was a fraud. The same thing happened again um, with a different stock where it was attacked by short sellers with a long report. And in both cases, there have been disputes. People claim that it's not as bad as the short sellers make it out to be and stuff, but it's probably not an accident that they wrote short reports about two things that I became concerned just reading about it, the accounting, the people involved in it and stuff, that I genuinely was worried that it might be a total fraud and stuff. Um, so, or... You know, or, or not a total fraud. You could tell that they were, you know, like in one case, you could tell they were manipulating things, that they were intentionally creating certain subsidiaries and doing certain things and stuff so that it could be reported a certain way. But, you know, um, that's not news necessarily. Um, it wasn't, you know, um, now when you read a book about Tycho or something, it might be hard to appreciate, but everyone knew what Tycho was doing to some extent forever that they had aggressive accounting related to their acquisitions and stuff was open knowledge. Um, the extent of it and stuff was what the argument was about. Um, but I bet it was even asked on CNBC or something like people say this about you or something. Um, I'm sure the CEO had questions at some point before it was, you know, exposed as exactly what they did. Um, so, and then there's other kinds of companies, um, that people short as well. Um, it's it's probably easier if you have a focus in financial services things. Long short in financial services might be particularly good, although it could be rough to experience in some ways. But long and short in the same sorts of industries and stuff, I could see that. You know, it also isn't great sometimes in terms of how it'll feel because there's often a phase in markets in which... Um, Actually, what will happen uh, is that the things that should be going up will not be, and the things that shouldn't be going up will be. And so you could think that you're significantly hedged pair trading things in the same industries and stuff, and yet the junky stuff will go up and the good stuff will go down in the last phase of it. Certainly when I was investing, starting investing in the late 90s and stuff, if I'd done long short stuff, it would have been brutal. Um, it felt fine because I, I wasn't doing that and it, there was very cheap, good stuff, boring stuff. But if on top of that, you were also saying, I'm going to short, you know, um, whatever things, you know, what Mark Cuban stuff and whatever, you know, whatever those kinds of companies were at that time, right? Broadcast.net. Um, yeah. Things that had no substance to them and stuff, but would be acquired or used as, you know, things in acquisitions and stuff. And there was a million of them and, uh, they would have been going up, Right. So it, it would be frustrating that way. Um, Do you think doing long short in financials could be a little bit more safer because you don't get, it's not as frequent to have like these meme stock crazes or these AMC crazes. I mean, obviously that was sort of in mm -hmm. its own bubble, but just, you know, there's a lot, I mean, Tesla, for example, right? How many shorts uh, got taken out on a stretcher shorting Tesla for the past 10 years? Yeah. You don't really get that type of market environment with a boring bank or something like that mm -hmm. you know yeah i could see that i mean the the returns that they make are normally pretty steady year after year they don't lose money and so you're i mean 
a big part of investing in financial services and is, uh, you know, as Graham called, you know, bond investing, it's a negative art. If you look at it from like Graham's perspective back in the security analysis that written in 40 or whatever, um, what he's saying is, look, if you need a certain level of yield, then you just basically go through it and cross out a hundred, say a hundred stocks have a hundred bonds have that yield. You just keep crossing them out until you get to the ones that are left. And then you buy those. Um, there's a significant extent to which that's true in like financial services. Um, uh, most of it is eliminating stuff that you're not happy with the risks being taken. A lot of them are making the same money taking totally different risks, you know? So everyone will say, well, the price to book should be whatever. And, and because they earn 10 to 15% on equity or whatever of these, you know, better banks, but some are taking huge risks to do it. And some are taking virtually no risk to do it. That's the difference. Um, it's not usually that one's making 30% and one's making 3%. Is there anything else that stood out to you before we get into like his time at Berkshire from his earlier years? Uh, he mentions Michael Lewis. Um, mm-hmm. So he he was called up to talk to him about the big short and stuff. And he talks that he knows Michael Lewis and stuff. Um, and then Michael Lewis said he wanted to be in. Don't worry, you won't be in the book. You're too normal. Yeah. Um, so uh, he reads a lot of like the actual filings and stuff, which we, you know, we talk about and that Mm -hmm. is important. And I think when you were saying about his drive, his determination, whatever his work ethic, I think that's true, but I think it is specifically focused on doing the work that other people won't do in terms of reading these filings and stuff. I don't know that it's like putting in incredibly long hours to meet everybody and to consider every situation and stuff as much as digging very deeply into some of the things that he does mm-hmm. um, to ferret out information that other people might not have and to understand every bit of it. And that part of that could be the background in um, regulation and also in insurance because those are important ones. And then he also mentioned the thing that Charlie Munger, uh, you know, he said, uh, was it that he used the term selling deep out of the money puts or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Munger said that that was brilliant or something, but said, what'd you say? That it, and he's <laughs> yeah. like, like, Oh gosh. He's like, uh, like they're selling deep on the money puts. He's like, Oh, that's brilliant. He's like, Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we mean with, um, some of the things that financial services, if you were going to short them or whatever things, uh, I think you wouldn't necessarily think about those things and understand them unless you were looking at what actual things, banks and insurers and stuff do and and did and um you know that is definitely something from the insurance side of things that would make sense in a way of looking at it um and a way of thinking about how you could make returns for a long time i mean we talk about this a lot on the podcast but that's like my problem with magic formula or something now magic formula doesn't do financials but a lot of times people say this this is making good returns right now Therefore, it must have a moat, or therefore, it must have whatever. In reality, it can mean uh, it doesn't have a moat, but they haven't surged in to compete with it, right? You know, and we don't know when that'll happen, but like, you know, Bezos with AWS thought he had a short runway and actually had a really long runway before people came in, but it can look good right before everyone comes in, right? Um, and it does. And and for public companies, you don't see that as much because they're like older and they're bigger and they're higher visibility. But like people who do entrepreneurial things would often be like, wow, look, I got this thing that's making money. And then suddenly kind of efficiency comes in and stuff and it disappears. Everyone starts copying the same thing you did. You just were a little faster to do it. Um, and, you know, when we talked about the the Going Infinite book, right, that was whether it's Jane Street or whether it's F, um, 
Alameda or whatever, all the trades that they started doing go over time. It was getting more efficient and it was, you know, and you have to find something else to do. So that happens. But the other thing can be risk. Um, it can look like you're making a lot more money because you're taking some risks that, you know, might not materialize. Um, and so your returns might be higher, but your returns might be higher taking different, uh, taking more extreme risks. And, you know, I don't know how you exactly adjust for that kind of thing to take that into account. But, um, I think a lot of good and bad financial services things wouldn't necessarily have very different returns. Like I would not, if you think something is trading a little high versus book, right? Um, not a lot high, but sort of, you know, normal or something, but it has low returns on equity or something and it hasn't been better than the past. I wouldn't short that whether it's an insurer or a bank because it has a lot of value to another buyer that comes in if something changes about it. You know, it's like you don't want to short a net net um, just because it's kind of mediocre. Uh, you'd actually want to short something that's more growing and doing risky things and, and whatever um, rather than, you know, something that has to unwind the other way, something that has to has too much leverage now and has to bring it down, something that's taking too much risk has to take less. You don't just want to do, oh, I don't think this is a great business. Um so I wouldn't use quick FS to decide like what to short um, or go long in, in financial services stuff. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on his uh, career at Berkshire? One thing I thought was interesting when he was talking about at Berkshire's headquarters, it's him and Warren are the only investors there. Mm -hmm. The rest of it's back office, accounting, compliance, uh, stuff like that. And it was sort of like, wow, I mean, you think about Warren being super independent in his investing. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's just him there, right? And now Todd. Um, so, and, and, and like the way that they talk about um, stocks as well. I mean, I thought it was interesting how he was talking about um, when Warren would walk down to his office, uh, you know, 10 times a day or whatever, and they talk about a certain situation and you know, it'd be like, well, the CEO is shit or this company is shit. And I was thinking, I was like, is that Warren saying that or is that Todd's interpretation of it? Um, but yeah, I mean, do you have any thoughts on his career? At yeah, Berkshire? I mean, there can be some benefits to being in the same space. And, you know, I think that that is true and that a lot of us miss that being in um, all remote and everything and that it's easy to overlook that. I also think that like even Todd, right? What did he have? Five analysts or something? I forget what he had. He had he. They weren't all just marketing people and stuff who worked at his um, fund. There were other people on the investment side. Um, Buffett is the only one. Like no one actually does the Buffett approach, even though they say I'm going to copy Buffett and stuff. When they start up a fund, they do all that. They then hire people. They then do other things that are different from what he's done. His is completely independent. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe a Monish, right? The Buffett cloner. I mean, he had said on a podcast that he has yep. two analysts Buffett does as well. Not. So yeah, everyone uses a computer. Everyone uses uh, has a staff and stuff. And uh, Buffett doesn't. Um, Todd mm -hmm. does. Todd has said yeah, he uses Excel. Absolutely. He said that he, you know, that was a lot of what he did creating those things. Um, for when he was looking at whatever mortgage shocks or, or bond things, securitizations and stuff. And yeah, yeah. Different tranches. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, I think there's some benefit to that. But then on the other hand, then Todd got involved in lots of things that aren't investing because of that. 
because if you get that close to Warren, then he, I think he ropes you into doing lots of other things and stuff. And so that's what ended up happening with Todd. So I don't know how much the focus is really, can really just be on investing and stuff with him anymore. It doesn't sound like mm-hmm. it. He talks about yeah. looking at lots of different deals for Berkshire to acquire. Um, yeah. 200 and a year. Being he involved, said. you know, with running insurance stuff, obviously, which is, would be a, Running a company with 40,000 people is what he said. I was like thinking, I'm like, goodness, how is he? Yeah, that would be a, a full-time job plate. for anyone else. And um, yeah, I, I don't, you know, Buffett wouldn't do it, right? Um, so mm-hmm. that's the trade-off there. If he hadn't moved to Omaha and been there in person and stuff, I don't think he would have had to do those things, but maybe he likes doing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about him as an investor? His approach is a little different than Buffett's and yeah. yours, right? Um, he's focused primarily on financials. What do you think? What are your thoughts on um, like investing approach that does something like that that is so focused on just financials as opposed to like the generalist approach to investing? I mean, I, I think he'd be better off at a hedge fund than at Berkshire. But he was, and he was done with that. So, um, does it fit with Berkshire as much? No, you know it's not as great for Berkshire to have that, and um, you don't get the shorting side of it. You are limited in terms of what you can look at, and you have to look at really big things at, at Berkshire. So, um, yeah, and then everything's very public about it. you know people are not just that you're filing and stuff, but that it's very watched as in you know all your filings and everything so all of that is probably not as he's not as perfect a fit for berkshire as some other people might be i guess um but you know i think he was tired of doing the fun thing um yeah he said he was looking for an insurance company right that was just didn't have lps it was can be well capitalized and kind of yeah i I don't know all of the details because he doesn't go into it but i got a little bit of the feeling that he had this goal in mind and that that goal didn't necessarily fit as much with what he actually enjoyed by the time that he got there to achieving the goal so like he wanted to manage half a billion dollars or something but i don't think he really wanted to do that um i mean they reported monthly i think right um so he said that all the partners were great and everything, but yeah, I think that he didn't. He ended up achieving something that probably he didn't want to do for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had said too. He's like, I made enough money to where I couldn't spend it all either. So it sounds like he just started thinking about what's the next. Yeah, most step of these people right? quit after. It doesn't matter how successful you are. I mean, obviously, you make enough money that you don't need to do it, and, and that can be a problem um, because it does free you to leave. And then, um, you know, it's it's not there's not a ton of super successful like hedge fund managers and stuff that actually want to do it after 15 years or something. Um, even when we talked about mutual funds, Peter Lynch, or we talked about Joel Greenblatt, we talked about there's so many. Even Buffett himself basically stopped running the partnership within that time frame. So, um, yeah, especially if they get really big. I think, and lots of other things sort of come up. Um, he mentioned they only did one presentation, you know, like at an event kind of thing with other people there and stuff. So he wasn't doing a lot of that. That wasn't the problem, um, you know. But I've heard other people talk about it when they bring on lots of, um, not lots of employees, but half a dozen or something. It changes things and, you know, um, 
some might feel responsible for them and whatever and stick to things for that reason. But I think it definitely decreases the enjoyment for a lot of people at that point where they're managing other people and they're further away from what they used to be doing, um, doing the work themselves. Yeah. I listened to a podcast recently with a hedge fund manager that's been, I mean, he's 20, 25 years in and he had said, you know, he has a staff of, I don't know, 15, 20 people or whatever. And he's like, it's hard to quit when you have a lot of people that depend on you. Not only that, but they have children that are going to college and have, you know, need insurance and all sort of things like that. He's like, it's hard to stop and <laughs> and do that, you know, because now you're managing a bunch of people and there's a lot that comes with yeah. that. Um, I've heard that a lot of times when people talk about quitting, doing a TV show that's successful, right? that they feel bad, the stars or whatever, because the thing is they're throwing out 50 people that you don't see in the credits out of jobs and things. Um, and they don't need the money and stuff, but obviously there's a whole staff that's been built up over a long period of time for doing things. Um, so, but you know, this, this kind of stuff has a tendency to grow to a size that it becomes too much for people, you know, or that it develops other things along it. Um, you know, and even if he keeps it pretty simple, it's not Buffett levels of simple. So I'm not surprised that people would want that. Lots of people would want more permanent capital or whatever. And that is what he was talking about with the insurance thing. That's kind of how he talked about how he ended up in touch with Munger and everything was thinking in those terms. Um, what new things did you think you learned about him? My impression of him did not change much from the Nebraska Furniture Mart podcast. I was just more interested in just listening to, I don't know, just how he is, like what he does at Berkshire, right? I was surprised to hear that he looks at 200 mm -hmm. acquisitions a year for Buffett. I was surprised to hear his thoughts towards shorting, really only because like it was almost refreshing in a way because a lot of people in that, you know, worship, um, you know, the church of Berkshire, they stay far away from shorting because Buffett and Munger say, just don't do it. So it was interesting to hear how he uh, is entirely foreshorting. He thinks it's great and, um, you know, that he effectively shorts all the time by not investing in a company, even though he doesn't put on a trade for that. I don't know. I just, I thought that it was just really refreshing to hear. I wish I could hear more about like his relationship with Ted and how they work together. Do they ever talk mm -hmm. about ideas together? Um, you know, I mean, it just sounds really that like they just both operate pretty independently of each other, which is, you know, how Buffett would like it, I think. And, he probably allows them to do basically whatever yeah, they, they want. Yeah, they are somewhat compensated based on the performance of the other person, which was a Munger idea, I think. And Munger said, I don't think it makes any difference, but it was an idea he had so that people wouldn't be selfish about ideas and would talk things through with each other that way. Um, I think for the most part, it's not hard to get managers to want to do that anyway. Um, you know, you'd be surprised how much people are willing to talk about ideas and stuff when it might be better for them to guard those things and stuff. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the shorting thing would be of interest to people and the amount of um, focusing on, you know, negative things about that because of the things that he saw with um, financial services, um, you know, before the crisis, before the financial crisis. Um, a lot of that was, you know, a very variant perspective, right? Because people are judging it from the reported results and, you know, some of these things. AIG was one of the most respected um, sort of thing. I mean, if you look at more traditional value slash quality type uh, bigger cap investors, they all owned AIG and they all, you know, um, that was a very popular stock for them to own. 
uh, and they'd want to dig into these sorts of things. Um, he certainly digs into them more and, you know, is more of a sleuth, I think, you get from this podcast, understanding that, than maybe you do from other ones. You know, when someone says that they read a lot of 10Ks or something, you don't know exactly what that means. Um, yeah, he's not a Peter Lynch investor. This is a very different sort of thing from that. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, be sure to check out this episode if you want to listen to Todd Combs and learn a little bit more about him. Art of Investing is the podcast. I will put all of the information in the description below. If this is the first time you're joining us, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. That will notify you whenever we upload a new podcast. And if you want to get access to the Focus Compounding Friday edition, it is a new weekly free newsletter that will be sent out every single Friday. Go to focuscompounding.com, click that Friday edition uh, link in the header, and you'll get our backlog there and also be able to be on our email list uh, for whenever we send it out. It will show up in your inbox. I thank everybody so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.